I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. Welcome to School of Everything Else. Dungeons and Dragons. Magician, thief, cavalier, and acrobat. Who was that? That was Venger, the force of evil. I am Dungeon Master, your guide in the realm of Dungeons and Dragons. That was disturbingly good. (laughs) This is not a discussion on the decades-spanning complex tabletop gaming system, uh, even though Gary Gygax did, in fact, uh, produce this. Uh, Rather, the animated show that ran on CBS from 1983, when I was three years old, to 1985, when I was five years old. Uh, It broadcast in the UK a little bit later than that, because I remember seeing it when I must have been about seven. It's... It, surprisingly in this scenario, spanned three seasons in its 27-episode run. Uh, I I, I found out uh, in later uh, years, Jason the Wheeled Warriors was just one, like, 24-episode show broadcast from September to November of that year every single day, and then they never went back. And I thought Dungeons and Dragons was the same thing, because uh, Masters of the Universe was on every single day. I suppose, like, it's just... I, I did not think this was a three-year thing. But it was made by Toei and Marvel in a similar animation style to G.I. Joe and Transformers, sharing similar music and many of the same sound effects and, indeed, key voice actors. I remember we, we've been watching our UK DVD set, and when it at, when it gets to the last bit at the end of the credits, it goes... And it was just blackness at the end of each one. And I was like... I feel like there's something there that I'm not seeing. And then I remembered it was that beautiful holographic Spider-Man leaping out of the background, pirouetting in midair, and then sort of landing gracefully on top of the Marvel logo. And I'm like, that is one of my formative memories. Because I think it was, uh, I could be wrong, but I think it was before Spider-Man and his amazing friends as well. Or, or sorry, at the end of. But either way, I definitely watched uh, Dungeons & Dragons. And that... I always thought of Spider-Man. So that, you know, I said to Sharon, he might, in fact, be the most important superhero who ever lived. Because if it's Superman, why aren't we getting good Superman movies? (laughs) Anyway, we figured out with the new Chris Pine movie coming out, speaking of DC, that it was high time we dove back into this childhood favourite. With us this time is Name Chaibiti, who watched through this whole thing alongside us, as, despite being considerably younger, reruns put this in front of him as a kid in the early 2000s. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Hello, everybody. <laughs> hey. 
the plot is simple. Six American high school kids get on a Dungeons and Dragons ride at a theme park and are somehow transported into a magical realm populated by monsters, wizards, and D&D specific cameos. They are granted costumes, weapons, and roles by a mysterious little guy named Dungeon Master, and they are hounded by a towering one-horned sourpuss sorcerer named Venger. They also have to look after a cute, helpless baby unicorn named Uni. Uh, Venger was voiced by Peter Cullen, who uh, is Optimus Prime, and Uni was voiced by Frank Welker. We're getting Welkered here, who was Megatron. So you've got a strange reversal of, I will destroy you. And it's it's like, oh, okay, right, the, the, the metal shoe is on the other foot now. Every episode, the kids face a new challenge and a dilemma in a non-linear, non-episodic style with almost no continuity or callbacks. So you could watch the episodes in any order, frankly, because that's the way most kids' TV was in the 80s. Their ultimate goal was to get home. Something that they were teased about. Something that they, the kids, were teased with an average of every 2.5 episodes with all manner of portals back to the nighttime theme park opening up. But every time they would have that salvation snatched away from them cruelly and gallingly, much like Samurai Jack for his first three seasons. There were no toys made due to split opportunities among various rights holders. And frankly, I'm surprised this even went to a second season, let alone three, because the rule was for the longest time, even up to like friggin Green Lantern the animated series in the uh, uh, the early 2010s that there had to be good action figure sales otherwise what was the point of doing an how animated else show we know whether the kids are responding to it or not that uh, it's amazing how that's changed a lot in the past 10 years mm. anyway by the end, viewing figures were dropping as kids aged out of it. This is something I said uh, regarding Batman and Robin uh, and, and Batman Forever the other day. Like the, those couple of years in the 90s were a long time for kids who were growing up and out of... Like, you know, they may have liked Batman Forever the first time uh, when they saw it, but then when they saw Batman and Robin, a lot had happened to them in those couple of years. And they were just like, this is for babies. And it's like, no, it's for you just a couple of years ago. They're really similar in tone. This is what producers often don't seem to take into account, the variable factors in the audience. Well, either way, uh, the, the the kids watching at the time were growing up and out of it and were getting interested in their own stuff, and, and it had to end. And tragically, that left the kids never able to actually return to their homes. There was never an episode of that. Though, the benefits of this are twofold in hindsight. One was the growth that they experienced along the way, which was more important than the journey home, as in, like, the journey itself was mm. the important thing. Yeah. And even if none of it really stuck to a continuity, lessons were learned. So, like, you know, they were slowly imparting the kids at home with, ah, think about it like this, and then it's not, so, you know, and just, just a, a little perspective was... Uh, was uh, there's several little remarks from Dungeon Master suggest that that's exactly what he was trying to do. Yeah. Uh, but also, the absence of a happy finale left this show tinged with a permanent melancholy, which helps it remain a favourite for those who love it. Because like, we never got that satisfaction of seeing them go home. So hearing that music at the end of each episode is just, it's so bittersweet each time, in, in a way that doesn't feel childish and just feels, you know, kind of it transcends age and eras and, and it has a... a 
an, an intangible magical quality to it. So tonight we are going to delve into the core party of this D&D group when we will perform what character study we are able with a show of this format. And we have allocated each of these characters to one of the three of us to head the discussion on. So like each, like we, we picked our favorite three. And with each, we must ask what their role in the team is, how well they fit that role, along with any character quirks or things that we like or dislike about them, plus their showcase episodes. So we will start with Sharon on Hank, the ranger, with a bow and arrow that basically either like fired percussion blasts to get things to go away from him or grappling hooks yep. or pitons or this bow javelins is or truly magic it does whatever Hank requires it to do in the moment. Mm-hmm. It's quite impressive. If ever, and he never remarks on that. No, he never he goes, my God, without this thing, I would be dead. If ever he was called <laughs> upon to like reach across a canyon and form energy fingers to press a button on a computer, that yeah. is what the arrow would do. And he'd do it on his first try. And he would do it on his first try. So okay. Animation budget does not cover second, third attempts. I am going to address the elephant in the room when it comes to Hank straight out the gate. He has a... Nazi poster child. child. (laughs) I mean, this whole group is white as fuck. They really are. With the exception of Diana, but we will come to that. We have one lady of colour. But the fact that the leader of the group appears to have been contractually obliged to be a somewhat fit, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, generally teenage-attractive... He looks like a quarterback. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he does. And the glimpse that we get of his clothes before he gets on the ride in the intro, my guess is that's exactly what he was. I'd imagine Channing Tatum could play him as an adult. Mm, yes. Yeah. He's he's sort of your Captain America. Mm. Best of the best. Now, I said well, while we were watching that he's a... Oh, hang on. Um, no, mate. You got anything on Hank? Well, if uh, if this was Scooby Doo, he would be Fred. Like he would. it's yeah. he is the prototypical like Voiced by Frank Welker, who's uni. Yeah, yeah, easy. He's the prototypical. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I, that, that was my thought. Is All that right. he's like is, is he's Fred? Toast. Yeah, you can go ahead. <laughs> but the thing is that the he is challenged, and that's one of the reasons why he is one of my favorite characters. He doesn't get it right every time. He doesn't make exactly the decision that you're supposed to. He doesn't continually have everybody agreeing with him. It is necessary for him to occasionally push when it's actually not appropriate for a leader to do so. And this is all done, you know, I'm saying this, this is all in a very, like, kid-friendly... It's it's not... Come on, gang, we got to get across there. Exactly, there is no Oh, yeah, right, this. we're never going to get across there. <laughs> Come on, Eric. <laughs> There's no real teeth to the way that any of this is done, but there are a handful of episodes that, that particularly focus on Hank's leadership abilities and occasionally will come to a conclusion that you wouldn't necessarily expect that kind of car- Saturday morning cartoon serial to have, that maybe leading is not what he is required to do in this particular instance. So there's two in particular... There's the traitor, in which 
He's a terrible communicator. Oh, he is an abysmal communicator. And I really hope that one of the lessons that he learned out of this was, for the love of God, when you are dealing with a group of people, tell them what you're planning. Stop just turning around and going... See, he's got nothing to say. Therefore, guilty. (laughs) Yeah, he's doing the strong, silent type, but unfortunately it sends completely the wrong message. For the scenario, they go to the Ewok village and the Care Bears are there with their uh, special gems... And uh, then they're being invaded by orcs, uh, but they, the only weapons they have are berries. And hey, you're giving too much information here. No, no, no. It's it just, just it's to give people a flavor of what kind of show this is. Yeah, indeed. Um, and uh, but but Venger has Bobby, and he's got him on a rack. Yeah. So that the the and he's told Hank, if you don't betray the bears, then I will kill Bobby. Yeah. But you can't tell anyone about this. No. And so everyone, and everyone's like, hang on, Hank just like. So, so when everyone notices, oh, hell, Hank just betrayed us all, they're like, what gives, Hank? And he just turns around and looks over the balcony in a kind of way. Continue, sorry. Well, that's pretty much what I was going to say. Um, so the the upshot of this is that Hank has to trust that he can be open with his team and they will help him rather than assuming that he has to make decisions off by himself that he doesn't tell anyone else about and take all the weight of how things progress on his own shoulders. We just saw Lightyear today, didn't we? Oh, we did. (laughs) Oh, yes, we did. And in fact, I was going to say there is uh, a similarity of underpinning message there about waking the fuck up and realising where home might be instead of persistently clinging to something you don't have anymore. He's also very similar to Leonardo in a lot of ways. A lot of people don't like Leonardo of the Turtles because he seems so stiff. Yeah, leaders in kids' cartoon serials often get the crappy end of the stick because they they have to... Be boring. ...make hard decisions and they have to be boring. And they are often not liked by the kid audiences. And I think... I mean, I, I... will tell you now, I literally have no idea whatever anybody else thought of Hank. Um, I didn't even know anybody else knew this show existed until I met you. Um, <laughs> so uh, I thought it was a little bit bland. This, is, this isn't this is something I have discussed extensively with But with I really liked people. his laser bow. I was like, if only I had yeah. that. It's not a laser, yeah. it's like fire. It's a little light bulb that blinks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then there's Quest um, of the Skeleton Warrior. And then in Quest of the Skeleton Warrior, which I think actually comes before the traitor, the, this is this is another one of my favourite episodes. The, the Sorry, kids yeah. Quest of the trapped. Skeleton, Skeleton Warrior. Warrior. Uh, the kids get <laughs> trapped in a uh, a castle which separates them through means of illusions and traps and subjects each of them to their own greatest fear. These greatest fears are revealed and resolved in ridiculously short order, but... Actually, it's going to be super easy. Barely an inconvenience. inconvenience. Um, Oh, really? But Hank's fear is revealed, and this is pretty early on in the show, to be he is afraid of leading everybody wrong and making decisions that take them down the wrong path and end up with them not being able to achieve their aims and... That doesn't really change. That consistently is his underpinning conflict. Yeah, one of his um, 
lines that will pop up again and again in the show is some leader I turned out to be. Yes. And it's in that really hokey, you know, like here's this Saturday morning cartoon. But like the fact that he keeps saying it, it's like, oh, man, you really are. You, you got to deal with this thing. I think they had a button on the soundboard. OK, Hank's feeling down. Press the old some leader I, <laughs> some turned, leader out I turned out to be. But I always assumed because mentally I sort of assigned them ages long mm. before Wikipedia existed and you could look this uh-huh. shit up. Um, but I always figured that Hank was the oldest and that was why he was kind of the, the default leader. But in actual fact, Hank, Diana and Eric are all supposed to be the same age. Oh, I figured that as well. The only one that I felt was was younger is Bobby because mm. he's Sheila's brother and it was along for the ride kind of yeah. tagged along with his older yeah. sister. Presto and Sheila yeah, are supposed I, to be 14. Oh, right, they're younger. Yeah, and okay. uh, Hank, Diana and Eric are all supposed to be 15. Okay. Yeah, I figured they were all in like the same class, which is why they were hanging out at the park. My God, though, the hormones we didn't get to see yeah, in this show. Yeah, there's, there's <laughs> a lot of soulmates being bandied around, but not really an awful lot of any that going down any particular road. It's very clean, but that there's a lot of yearning mm. for a kid's there show. There is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very influential on my early fanfic mm. writing. Okay. <laughs> what do you think scared him off? Simple, Sheila. They took one look at my great strength. One look at my grim weapon. And one look at your grody face. (laughs) Wait a minute. Where's Uni? Those wolves must have chased her into the forest. They went this way. Then we're going that way, too. They went this way. We're going that way. How come nobody ever asked me which way I want to go? This is great. This way is just fine. Who'd you say is dumb? Now, now, young ones. Yeah, but Eric won't help us save Union. Huh? It's Dungeon Master. Who's that guy with the wolves? Who cares? He's got Uni. He is the wizard Kellick. Beware, barbarian. He has much more than the unicorn you love. Oh, that little weirdo won't get away with his riddles this time. I'm writing down every dumb word he says. Well, who's that big unicorn? That was Silvermane, the leader of the last unicorn herd. How'd he disappear like that? His magic horn. It gives him the power of teleportation, like all of his kind. But remember, the fate of one is shared by all. I got it. The fate of the magic... No, no, wait. The horn of portation? No, no. The telephone is shared by all? That's not right. Oh, Dungeon Master, could, could you repeat? Oh, no! Yep, he's gone. Which leaves us with a thorny problem. Oh, yeah! I'll smash through him! I think I have a better idea. Ooh, Hank's got a better idea. <laughs> Next character, uh, fan favorite, I would imagine, because he was a total nerd, Presto. Here it is. So Presto um, is the magic guy. He's got a magic hat. Um, and the way it kind of works is that it's, you know, like he, he takes it off and he says a rhyme and then something happens. And whether that's what he wants or what he doesn't want is up to the uh, <laughs> the scenario and how funny or dangerous it would be. But uh, Presto's not allowed personality in the same way that almost all the other characters are 
he gets paired up with Eric a lot, I think, um, because Eric is the loudest and Presto is the quietest. But he's potentially the most powerful character out of everybody. I mean, you, you've got two uh, real attackers like Hank with his bow and Bobby with his club. Um, but Presto can do some really, really big things, yeah. and he does in over the course of the show. But I, I, I think that is also comes with him having a really big heart. Uh, maybe besides Bobby, uh, Presto seems to really care about the others and the world he's in and the people they meet. And he, he'll say things like, we can't just let them let them fall or let them die or things. Oh, they don't say die because it's, they, We can't you know. just let them be destroyed. Yeah. We can't let them be vanquished. <laughs> we can't let but, that party wipe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I have to re-roll everything. Oh. Yeah. One thing, oh, wait, saving throw. One thing I yeah. noticed about the uh, the pr- products of Presto's hat, and this is kind of intriguing, he produces stuff both from the D&D realm mm. and stuff from their world that really shouldn't be here. Yeah. And then he just sort of leaves them. And then he just leaves it there. I think at one point he pulls a tank out of his hat and that just sits there. (laughs) I asked, uh, does he have really crap luck rolls or really high luck rolls? Because oftentimes he'll be like, I need something to put out this fire. And then he won't be able to pull a fire extinguisher out. But the thing he will pull out will be like an elephant with a trunk full of water. I'm just making this shit up. It doesn't. But it would be something that would happen like that. Yeah, the thing he gets is very rarely exactly what he asked for, but it usually does the trick. So what would that be? Good magic? I personally think it's bad skill, good luck. Okay, bad skill. Possibly, yeah, mm. that makes sense. Well, I, I, he gets better with his magic mm. over the course of the show. Like in the first, I, it, it's kind of hard to delineate which season you're in when you're just watching them all. Yeah. Um, but definitely in the early episodes, he has no idea what he's doing. And then towards that, the at end, at that point, he was a joke, and it's like everybody look at Presto. Wah, wah. Yeah, the aforementioned yeah. tank is from series three. Mm. I will say, by the way, just a, a, as an aside, you can tell when you're watching series three the animation gets very choppy and it is very clear that the budget was being cut to the bone the last shot of the last show it looks like the producers came in and literally turned off the lights and went right that's your lot clear out (laughs) bye you can't even finish yeah but i would say that the secret to uh presto's magic is the specifics of his wording he his spells really fail when they're too broad Mm. yeah but and that's something that he deals with himself because his personality is not a loud, pronounced personality. Mm. Um, but when he like figures out the specifics to his wording and when he gets really passionate about something, that's when the the magic will be cinched. One of the episodes... He lacks faith in himself, definitely. Yes, like absolutely. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the, the Nelwyn, not our Willow. Yeah. Although Willow yeah, yeah. possibly lacks faith in himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a, a line in the episode, uh, Presto spells disaster, but he goes, it, it's at the end of the episode, and he goes on a big tangent. He says, I'll fiddle with my twiddle and diddle with the middle and <laughs> make a magic with the riddle. Middle, dude. <laughs> and make a magic riddle that will make the giant little. And he's so confident, but he says very specifically in this line, he's like, I want to make this giant really small, mm. and that will solve the problem. And... That, that solves it. So, like, as he learns to be more specific with his wording and with what he wants from the hat, that's what makes the hat work better. It would all um, be in a, in a modern show, eventually the hat would start talking to him and go, there you are, you actually were specific this time. 
Mm-hmm. You didn't ask. Yeah. Honestly, of all of them, he has a potentially unspeakable power because of what he can pull out of this thing. I mean, Mm -hmm. the rest of them uh, have the ability to, like, make the ground shake or flip up over a thing or fire a bolt of a a thingy, albeit, you know, a shield. Presto's hat can technically do anything. Mm. He could pull the Atlantic Ocean out of it. Yeah, they're all running around with hammers. He has the most flexible tool of all of them. Yeah. Uh, so it um, also makes me feel like a mo- in a modern show, one of the main like through lines for Presto would be training. <laughs> like rather than just leaving us high and dry every time we need you to rely on your hat, practice this thing because it doesn't seem like the magic costs him anything. So practice more. Yeah. It's a light magic system. I mean, uh, which is weird for D&D, which is usually pretty hard magic. If you're spending magic, you, you lose points. Mm, so, yeah. yeah. It's Although a bit of a hand wave. He that. does usually then have to waste time dealing with whatever it is that's come out of the hat. Mm. That's okay. true. No, wait! You don't understand! Varna? Our daughter. Is she? <laughs> no! No! Fest our village, now Varla! Make them pay! Wait a minute, the village, look at that! I don't get it, is that good news? Don't you see? It was Varla's illusion. The illusion's still here, so Varla's still here. Someplace. That's what Dungeon Master meant by, when things look their worst, things will be their best. But where is she? How am I gonna find her? With your heart. Your heart, as you have always done. Look! The Dungeon Master. It is the Dungeon Master! My favourite character who abided with me the whole way uh, through and is still very watchable today is Eric, uh, who is Cavalier. And as a kid, I was like, why didn't he get a sword? Because I didn't understand that parents were like, no, nothing, no kind of weapons. Thundercats had swords and nonchaku and and, and whips and bow staffs and stuff. And and, and a friggin' monkey and had a morning star. But everyone was just using the trip maneuver to get everyone to fall over. But Eric's got the Captain America ability. He's got, he can protect everyone. And beautifully he is diametrically opposed to that because although he's a colossal physical coward he doesn't outwardly seem to care about anyone else so why should he protect them but it keeps being brought out of him over and over again if you ever watched happy days as a kid uh, congratulations on your 50th birthday by the way um <laughs> then you would have seen don most uh playing or donny most playing R- mouth the the ginger one who wasn't richie and uh he kind of He's got a quite a lot of soccer energy, or soccer's got a bit of Eric energy. But didn't the parents' group say that Eric always had to be wrong because cowardice is bad, whereas it's, soccer is a lot of the time is right? No, what the uh, the the because this like said, this was a, created at a time when parents, especially in America, were saying Dungeons and Dragons is satanic, mm-hmm. and it was uh, they they thought that it would ch- teach their children witchcraft. Yeah, and and also the other thing that is is not quite the same as it is now obviously there's a lot of pressure groups that try to influence what media is presented mm. but it is not as direct an influence as it used to be these yeah. parents groups used to have like a direct line to the ear of the producers of these mm. shows and the, mainly because no one else was allowed a big vo- voice yeah. whereas now was, we have a lot of vocal kind people of a, 
back in the day, there was sort of this general acceptance that TV was contributing to the raising of kids, mm. and therefore parents should get a say in how TV was was raising their children. Well, maybe you should raise your own kids and teach them. <laughs> this is TV. Take everything that's on it with a grain of salt. I mean, I'd, yep. that would require parents back in those days to be an awful lot more media literate than they were. Mm, that's um, true. But um, but the. The thing that they communicated they wanted Eric to represent was the socially accepted moral that the group is always right. And if there is a dissenter in the ranks, somebody who objects to the group's decisions, they have to turn out to be wrong. And so that was the the position that Eric got stuck with. Whenever he made an objection to something based on certain uh, decisions and considerations, it was supposed to proved to be wrong Mm. but when you watch it he is like everyone else is like come on gang we've got to keep going and eric is the one who wants to go home the most there's a lot of implications that like his father is this country club millionaire and Mm -hmm. that eric's had this pampered existence and that frankly none of the rest of the kids really like him leading me to wonder why is he in this group I'd like just, like, again, a modern version of this show would actually flash back to when they were in line. It's like, oh, God, Eric's there. And Eric's at the theme park on his his own. own. Yeah. Being really sad and lonely, and then maybe Sheila or something says, "Come on, guys, we got to let him like come in, uh, in line," and and basically trying to get him to come on the roller coaster with them because it'll make him feel less alone. And Eric deeply resents them for that. In retrospect that'd be a great little through line i'm just thinking of these just off the top of my head here but yeah just the stuff you could do with these premises now i mean the 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 closest modern day version is actually the uh, more recent jumanji films because Mm. effectively they're kids who get to go into a fantastical realm it's just that they are then represented by the rock and and very and kevin hart and various other people and aquafina doing danny devito's voice and "Ah!" Can your grandfather do this? That's not going to be at all. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Eric is right a lot of the time about, you know, we can't trust Dungeon Master. He keeps disappearing behind rocks. He's never there when we need him. And, you know, th- this place is incredibly dangerous. we got to get the fuck out of here. Uh, but at the same time, it's so obvious that him staying here for longer is really needed because if he goes back to the life he had before, he's just going to disappear into uh, the shunting of uh, upper-class Americana. <laughs> Quite possibly, yes. Listen to our show on society for that one. It's on the Patreon. Bring a sick bag. I was just about to say. <laughs> <laughs> bring, but, bring multiple sick bags. But yeah, uh, uh, there's something kind of pathetic about a knight running around with just a shield and it's the old kind of triangular Captain America puts his lines on there for the USO show type shield. But it's incredibly powerful and saves their asses over and over again. And ultimately, the more we'd see Eric sort of step up to the plate, he's the lancer, effectively, Mm. of the group. He's the one who opposes Hank. And the parents saying he can never be right made his character less complex when it could be more complex. It made the outcomes of the stories less complex. I don't think it made Eric's character less complex. Come on, guys. Cheer up. It's not the end of the world. Yeah, well, it's a close second. We were almost home. Watch where you put your dumb club. Watch where you put your dumb feet. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. Take it easy. Sis, I hate this. I don't want to be in this world anymore. (laughs) I want mom and dad and 
and our house and my friends and... It's okay, Bobby. It's all right. It's all right. This is all Venger's fault. We ought to do something about that guy. Eric's right. Sam? Yeah, and we are going to do something about him. We are? That's right. The only chance we have of getting out of this world is if we take care of Venger once and for all. How? Nobody can stop Venger. Not even Dungeon Master. Wrong. There's one thing that can. A dragon. Tiamat. You're crazy. You got any better ideas? I didn't think so. Hank, don't you remember? Tiamat's the most dangerous dragon in the realm. How can we possibly use her to finish off Venger? We'll find a way. Come on. When I was a kid, I found him annoying. Mm. But the older I got, the more I was like, you know what? We kind of need Eric in this group. Someone to mix it up a bit. Because if everyone's like, we got to get going, gang, then it becomes a little bit too Brady Bunch. Yes. Indeed. Speaking of which, Bobby, the youngest of them. This one's yours again, Name. Yeah, Bobby is the youngest. He's Sheila's younger brother. And I don't know, what do we what do we think? Like four years younger than everybody else? Oh, he's like he's, 11. He's nine when they travel, has his 10th birthday while he's there. Oh, shit. Oh, wow. And at one point claims to be almost 11. They've been there a long okay. time. Side note, by the way, we find out through one episode alone, although that is bending time, so we don't know quite what's happening with that. We got, you know, there's, there's various time travel things that as I always thought when I was a kid that, Every time you see the end sequence and it's dragging across the park as it's now closed and it, sh- it starts with the Dungeons and Dragons ride with the big fiery mouth open and it slowly goes across the bay to mm-hmm. these abandoned uh, bumper cars and, and, and a bench with nobody on it that the park has now closed, it's sunset, all the kids have gone home, that another day has passed in our world as well. Oh, man. And they've been gone longer and longer and longer and oh longer. gosh but we found out from one kid who gets dragged under his bed in this fucking terrifying episode near the end that it's <laughs> still to him the night of the day when they all went to the theme park and he couldn't go mm-hmm. so yeah narnia rules yeah and there was nothing ever more solid than that so we may as well just say no barely any time has passed and their parents aren't worried yet i mean they didn't come home from the theme park one imagines they're quite worried but then they're not like back of milk carton worried yet yeah they 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 could be like they could be like 40 years old by the time that they finally go home and then appear again in their younger bodies and like well here here we are i Honestly, guess i was going to write a, a lengthy D fanfic back in the day that that had sort of a 10-year time jump and then they were all adults but they've gone their separate ways and everyone was sad and it was all about the getting the gang back together i think i put a lot of what ended up there in the princess thieves oh nice cool Uh, continue yes so you would think that bobby would be really annoying but i in my opinion i think that he's just as capable as everybody else he like he is part of the conversation that they have and they listen to him and I don't know, he solves a lot of his problems with kind of a Bobby Smash mentality. <laughs> he's a bit Bam Bam, isn't he? he is yeah. Bit, yeah. He's kind of Bam Bam with his club and he can make the earthquakes happen with it, but he's also scrappy do with the Lemmy Adam I'll split yeah. him. That is not harmed in the slightest yeah. by the uh, the Skeleton Warrior episode. Skeleton Warriors! 
thing where it turns out that Bobby's greatest fear is to be turned into a baby again. Nice. Well, but he's, he's unlike afraid Scrappy of... Doo, he actually can cause some damage. But he's a yeah. war- like he's not a tank. He's the effectively he's closest to a rogue, I suppose. He can rush in, but he's squishy. Like the reason they keep trying to get him back away is that if a dragon steps on him, he's dead. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they don't really I mean, have a tank or uh, someone who can really take the damage. Mm. You would think so. that you would think that rushing in and all that stuff would really harm um, the plan or the it, w- it would mess up their cover. But the show never presents that as a mistake, and in fact, it like works a lot of the time. So it's I don't know how headstrong Bobby is. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and to speak to the point of his fear being a baby, his his fear is being seen as a baby to the rest of the group. Mm. Um, they they are. Like I said, he's tr- treated a lot as an equal, but his age does come up now and again, especially when he's being teased by Eric, and he just he just hates that mm. because you know he Bobby feels very protective of everybody around him, mm. and this so if anything he should have the shield. Yeah, he is the one of the only people that can outwardly like attack other like incoming enemies there's like i said there's hank with the bow and there's bobby with the club and so bobby feels protective of his sister he feels protective of his beloved unicorn um and he he feels protective over everybody in the group when when he can um and i think that you know that that really affects him with uh like his main episode um that that we have is the girl who dreamed tomorrow where he meets his soulmate uh, Terry and Terry is a, a somebody from our world who has come in and she's been here for some time be- apart from um, from the gang and Dungeon Master didn't help her at all it's, no it, not at all she got, she got in the same way they did there's an old abandoned theme park car just uh, you know off to one side mm. um, her and I her don't dog know about that necklace though I, I wondered if that's the the power item she was given oh. yeah because her ability is to when, when she dreams she can yeah when she dreams she can dream the future and she can see visions that uh pretty much always come true mm. um and she's able to like help warn about these situations yeah. and she eventually dreams um while they're helping her and themselves get through this crazy maze which is just nuts um, that th- there's a scene where they're all fighting with each other, and the screen goes red, and it's really unsettling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Presto's face, he just goes, "Oh my gosh!" <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Hell- Hellraiser they- is that where they have the maze? Let's say yes. Yeah. That's the labyrinth yeah. at the end. Mm-hmm. That was the yeah. one where I said that all of the Cenobites have one weakness: physical trauma. So if you put them up against the guys from the raid, they would shit their britches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she dreams that she's back in school. And who comes to see her but Bobby? And Bobby gives back the magic necklace that she owned. And she wakes up and she's Dungeon Master is there. And she's like, is that really true? Is that going to happen? He's like, yes, it is going to happen. Um, but it may not happen for a little while. But yeah, but it, it's really sad for, for Bobby because he has to, as with every episode, they have to sacrifice what they want for the good of the people around them. And uh, they get Terry home and they make a promise to see each other again. But when that is, the audience will never see it. So that always stuck with me as a viewer because that vision and that promise from Dungeon Master is like one of the closest things we have to a promise that they do actually get home. Because every vision has come true. And so we have to we do, we have to believe in this vision. And Bobby does. He celebrates at the end. But yeah, it, it's uh, 
it's one of those haunting endings. That feels that that's a sad episode, but a bit of yeah. sweet. But it feels like a, a little. We've got to give them something from the writers' room. Like you know, we've just got to like give the kids a sense of hope that there is an end to this, even if there isn't. Mm. Yeah. Uh, next one up, Bobby's sister Sheila. Uh, that's your show. Yeah, Sheila was one of my Thief. other favorite characters yeah when i was a kid the uh the, the the sound quality on our tv was so bad it went ranger cavalier barbarian and acrobat and, and i was you like never knew what sheila was what's sheila <laughs> i was a little kid i didn't know what the the thief was a class in D. we didn't even have D in the uk we had simon and the witch that's all we had that and bodger and badger We did have D&D, but obviously not at our age. Yeah, no one was going to get a seven-year-old to play D&D. What, you guys couldn't just Google the rules? No. No, you couldn't. <laughs> no, mate. <laughs> okay, so Sheila is, as you say, Bobby's sister. Now, a lot of what goes on with Sheila is directly related to how she interacts with other people. And she is kind of, even though she's a little bit younger than the, uh, the, the older kids... She sort of seems to be the de facto mum of the team. The den mother. She's the, the most... tropey character of any female... Yes. ...has got to be the den mother Absolutely. of all the rowdy boys. She's the Luckily, m- there was one other girl. <laughs> there was. Um, but who she doesn't was... get much to do. No, she doesn't. Um, so Sheila was the most protective... In terms of, she, she is in particular very protective of Bobby. And that's kind of, there's kind of an irony in that. Because like you said, Name, Bobby is very protective of Sheila. And a lot of his fears of being infantilized actually come from the way Sheila is overprotective of him. And he probably wouldn't have to deal with all of that if she wasn't there. Because a lot of that, we can't let Bobby get hurt, comes from her. Uh, she is also the person who tends to be the naysayer when it comes... Although Eric seems to be that person, Sheila is often the one who will go, that's too dangerous, we can't do that, we have to find another way around it. But at the same time, she is very quick to respond when somebody else is being threatened. If there's something that they can do to protect or defend an, uh, a, a stranger, then she is often the one who who will sort of come forward with that and also when they're getting to know strangers often the point of connection will be Sheila because she's like she's the one of them who is the least threat yeah she's, she's got a girl an... she's wearing a mini skirt she's got a power that involves just going invisible she's got an invisibility cloak she may as well curl up like a hedgehog indeed she, she doesn't is... use it to steal she anything she doesn't no I think that's like, maybe why once. it doesn't mean anything <laughs> it really doesn't no she uses it to get away from things that occasionally cause distractions um, but she is uh, she she kind of feels a bit like Fantastic Four Sue Storm Sue, Sue Storm um, Den mother to bo- uh, <laughs> her youngest brother Bobby yeah. <laughs> and Ben Grimm, who I suppose would be Cavalier. I don't know, just the Maybe. rowdy one. Yeah, um, who is Bobby? I don't know. <laughs> but the the episode that actually really kind of 
brings Sheila out of herself in terms of exp- uh, exploring her character is... Really is near Citadel- the end. Yeah, it's very near the end. It's Citadel of Shadow, where she fucks up royally. Like, she makes major errors of judgment that end up uh, causing a lot of trouble. Like, she but then- sets a, la- a girl free because the girl's like, please help me mm. at... A lot of episodes of Dungeons and Dragons are either someone who looks nice and turns out to be nasty, yep. or, or someone, someone who, who looks, looks nasty and, and turns, turns out, out to be nice. nice. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. so uh, they should pretty much go, ah, oh, this person looks nice, they're nasty, however, and just know that every appearance is deceiving. However, one thing. Ah, oh, you peasants look poor. You must be rich. One thing I really appreciate is that. Every time, whether the person looks nasty and is misinterpreted or looks nice and is misinterpreted, it never turns out to be a bad idea to help someone. Mm. Even Mm. if that person then turns out to be uh, a traitor or someone who is trying to cheat you or whatever, the outcome is still, but you now have something that you wouldn't have had before. If you look at the meta of this... Uh, Why would a dungeon master set you up with someone who you could help and then set you the lesson to be learned is don't help people? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) This is Ayn Rand the DM. Yep. Yeah, I'm gonna right. I'm gonna go to the. No, effort. she is a leech. I'm gonna go to the effort of setting up all of these characters. I want you to ignore all of them. Yeah. No D and D DM ever said that ever. <laughs> and if they did, they suck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So, but she, this this lady's like, please help me out, and then Sheila goes, yeah, okay, I'll help you out, and then it's like, haha, you fool, I'm Venger's sister. Unlikely yeah. as that may seem. Indeed. But then she turns out to be secretly good goodish she just something. needed an opportunity yeah. for redemption and uh but again yeah the the the, the mercy and the that sort of giving people a chance mm. even if it's like oh god now we're really screwed it does tend to pay off in a this was the right thing to do the writers were always trying to get kids to be kind yeah Absolutely. Yeah, which, to, uh, which you know, it turns out the 80s really needed. Yeah. Oh, by the way, folks, uh, <laughs> one show which we also saw around about this time was The Raccoons, where a bunch of raccoons who live in a forest are like, we've got to stop this forest getting bulldozed by this cartoon madman billionaire named Cyril Sneer, the pink dude with the, the aardvark nose that Jim Stephanie Sterling uses all the time as an example of catripolapitalism. Yes, and just... And it's like, this was telling us just to mistrust these complete assholes, but also that his son Cedric wasn't that bad and actually did no, want to he help. he was on their side. Yeah. yeah, he totally wanted to help. But it was like, the, the raccoons is all you need. We got everything you need. They even said it in the uh, the, yep. the, the credits. Yeah. Like, we had, as Generation X, every single opportunity to look at these, this cartoon billionaire and go, wow, that is danger. Do not trust anyone like this. Mm. And yet... Anyway. And yet. Cyril Sneer. Karina? Karina, what's the matter? (gasps) You have served your purpose. What? (laughs) I needed you to break the spell guarding my ring. Now that I have it, I don't need you any longer. But uh, I thought we were friends. You thought wrong. Who's your friend? Her name is Karina. I 
thought I would find you here, Karina. You know Venger? Welcome, brother. He's your brother? You're his sister? <laughs> wow! That was terrific! How did you do that? I couldn't have done it without Sheila's help. Huh? I didn't do anything, really. Nonsense. Without Sheila and Yuni's help, I would never have gotten my ring back or been able to overpower my brother. You know, we'd make a great team, Karina. How about it? You care to join us? Don't touch me. Hey, you want to come over to my place and watch the Dungeons and Dragons episode where Eric transforms into something? Oh, so season one and season two. And all of season three. Oh, my favorite episode where someone screams and it's Presto's voice every time. He had one take that the directors loved. What about the one where Uni is in trouble? No, no, no. no. no we gotta go back they... and help Uni again. No, no, no. The one where they make it home, but they have to turn around. And that Valley of the Unicorns episode drove me nuts. Because <laughs> they found the one place that they could leave uni safely and actually be able to go home. But then when they're leaving, she runs back out after them. And Eric needed to shout at that point, right, so we're not going home then because you either bring her with you and she gets eaten by an American bear or you leave her in dungeon land and she gets eaten by a beholder. Ah, it's too bad she doesn't have that last unicorn belief trick. Otherwise she could just be a horse in the real world. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, the, 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 this bothered me so much because, like, that they uh, on on several occasions they need to get through this portal, and it's actually Uni being in trouble that brings them back. And this Valley of the Unicorns episode is really early on; it's like episode four. So yeah, there's not actually that much else to say about Uni. She is purity personified. She's um, just Frank Welker going. No? He, like, he must have done seven or eight sounds and then got a massive paycheck for that because he's Frank goddamn Welker. Yeah. Uh, but, like, you can completely understand why it's a save-the-cat moment every episode. Like, they have to show their inherent goodness to protect this fragile little thing. Yeah, I wrote down that Uni is the constant reminder that the kids have a purpose here. It's that they help whoever needs them, and Uni is always the one that needs them. So she's always emblematic with the fact that they have a purpose mm. in the realm. I actually thought in that episode where uh, Sheila meets Venger's sister that Uni was onto her from Jump Street. <laughs> and you're like, what, Uni? Quit bothering me. I'm talking to this human woman. <laughs> Uni be like, and just, like, illustrate that Uni's actually really quite smart. Yeah. As opposed to this infant that she, she's uh, almost always portrayed as. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's important to have her there. To, like, she's not just there as a thing that thinks it's a dog but isn't a dog. Or a, a, a mascot that a group can have, which was sort of plagued late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. Things, uh, possibly brought on by Slimer. Voiced by Frank Welker, where it's with the like same Slimer voice, was so charming to audiences that he, he got his own goddamn show in the end. They, they insisted that they put Slimer into Ghostbusters Two, and the dudes from Saturday Night Live were like the the, the Green Ghost, the one that slimed Venkman. Oh yeah, all the kids love him. So yeah, it's uh, it, it's on all on Welker for being so goddamn charming. So Diana, the other lady okay. of the group, the only woman of color in the whole show. Diana is, I think, the most optimistic in the group. 
she has a lot of fun with what she does with pretty much with any any environment. She's an acrobat, mm. and she was an acrobat before even coming into the realm. Um, well, they, well, they say I need that to see her practicing. I need to see her <laughs> being an acrobat. Otherwise, she's a Mary Sue. I think somebody does actually point out. I think it might be Hank that she has won. Well, Hank obviously was going to be really great at archery. So you know, we didn't need yeah. to see him train. <laughs> Sorry, Gary. but yeah, yeah. Um, like Sharon said, Diana has won awards back home for her gymnastics and, yeah. and such, and so she's got this skill to uh, adapt to her environment and to bounce back from really tough situations. Kind of like a second leader to the group. She's not a mom to the group like like Sheila is, but she does take point and she is um, authoritative. And she's kind of like <clears throat> when when Hank's not around, they, they'll be more likely to listen to Diana. And maybe that has to do with age or seniority. But um, yeah, she's I just chipper all the time, which is influential because if you are just upbeat and you tell people it's going to be okay, they kind of believe you because you've mm-hmm. been right in the past. Yeah. There's that, the, her, her episode, her, her big main episode is child of the stargazer. And they, they meet a, a, a guy who's escaped and has been prisoned for a lot, a long time. And his name is Kozar. And this is her, Soulmate. Everybody gets an episode where they make a friend or they come into a very quick relationship. And this is hers. And this is the one time where she adapts and then she sticks. She gets really attached to him, to the fact that she's like lagging behind with everybody else because she's just so enamored with this person. And it turns out um, their connection is so deep, like the cosmos has decided that they are a match. There's a prophecy that they think that uh, only Kozar can 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 fulfill. Um, but it turns out that Diana meets all the other qualifications. Like her dad is uh, studies the the stars, and so does his dad, and all these other things. And so it it comes to be interchangeable to fulfill this prophecy. Um, how would you, how would you guys describe what this situation is? She runs into a beam of light and turns into a giant woman. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So there's there's a queen who has been doing sort of back with the Narnia parallel. She has been white witching this area uh, mm. for a long time. It's a verb. And the prophecy is supposed to be to do with what will bring her down in the end, which is that the child of the stargazer will stand on this plinth in the temple, and uh, a convergence of some description will happen, and it will cause her to um, her her reign to be ended. And so, yeah, she's she's kidnapped Kosar, whose father is, and this was a this was a little quirk of language that I always appreciated, even from a very young age. Kosar is a child of the stargazer because his father is an astrologer, as in mm-hmm. zodiac signs and and the uh, the meaning that can be drawn from the mythological representations of the star patterns. Diana is a child of the stargazer because her father is an astronomer. He is the scientific end of looking at stars through telescopes. And and, and again, it links back to, in our world, a star is a ball of flaming gas. Even in your world, that is not what a star is, but only what a star is made of. Romandu. So the yes. uh, it hints at a fusion of science and faith. Yes. Yeah. Which yeah. was always a big draw for me in... 
the uh, media that I tended to mm. like. Work for Einstein. Yes. Uh, like I said, Diana doesn't actually get that much to do. Her pa- her power is effectively she has a, a pole vault, which means she gets to do acrobatic stuff. She keeps calling it a javelin. It's not a javelin. She never. Th- I think she throws <laughs> it like once. Yeah. But uh, I think if if the show has a weakness, it's that she doesn't. Uh, she doesn't get enough to do, and Sheila really needed m- another episode where she actually has to really be brave. Mm. Uh, the, uh, the the girls are a little bit too... They have Cast their aside. edges sanded off to help boys watch this show. But like the whole thing feels inclusive in mm. terms of, like, you know, Sharon watched it. it. It seems like something that any girl who watched She-Ra would be like, I'm totally down with this yeah, as well. absolutely. This this was literally the first cartoon I ever yeah. watched. So, ergo, wow. it feels like the female characters should have been better served in that regard and had a bit more to do. <laughs> but, I mean, most of the kids, like, out of 27 episodes, most of the kids get one Maybe one and a half or two episodes each. So it's not like I will the say boy... this. There is way too much focus on Hank. <laughs> there is. And uh, there are maybe a few too many types of episode repeated. Hmm. Where it's like, yeah. we just had to trust in this person. Because Dungeon Master set, like the first ever episode, uh, Night of No Tomorrow. You will know your enemy by his white hair. And they meet... Merlin, the magician, up in a, uh, a castle in the clouds, and he's uh, stroking a big white rabbit that's a very, very big rabbit. And they say, can we see your hair? And he takes off his hat, and he's got no hair and a grey beard. It's like, well, he's got grey beard, so clearly he's not the person with the white hair. It takes so long for them to work out the spelling yeah. of H-A-R-E. Anyway, turns out to be Venger in disguise. The amount of times it, it turns, turns out, out to be Venger in, in disguise could be the addendum to every single episode. Venger as a character is a little bit pathetic. All he does is bitch and moan about these kids. And he's like, oh, children <laughs> with their weapons. I must have the power of the weapons. Get on with whatever it is you were doing before they arrived. Find something else, Venger. <laughs> we, well, are, we were also denied at least one episode where instead of just, it turns out it was Venger all along, flashback to whatever the hell Venger was doing to get him into this state. It's revealed later on that uh, uh, Dungeon Master is in fact his father. And that was said in, it's in the text. So like, it's like, oh, bet there's a story there. Oh, there absolutely is. Are we going to see that? Oh, heavens no. So it's (laughs) permanently mysterious. But he's kind of Megatron, but he's also kind of lonely because Megatron gets to rant and rave at Starscream. All Venger has is a a black nightmare of a horse who doesn't talk. And... Shadow Weaver or the Shadow, shadow Demon thing, Demon, yeah. who just sort of master the plan. Like <laughs> they have gone to the the realm of Galugaloth. Excellent. Now I shall <laughs> pretend to be an old washerwoman. They do bring Shadow Demon in. Like it's, he's not there from the beginning, but at some point you can see the turn when they realise Venture needs someone to talk to. <laughs> so yeah, he's yeah. stomping about the place in this really long robe that makes it look like, uh, and he's wearing like a, a red traffic cone on his head. And he looks so uncomfortable all the time. Maybe even worse when he smiles because he's got these big fangs. So he's like, I can't even eat carrots properly. Like it's 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 just he's there is a- definitely a Darth Vader influence oh, yeah. in his outfit. Oh yeah, there there is 
significant Star Wars influence in this that they managed to conceal quite well for the most part. But Peter well, Cullen is an excellent voice actor, uh, absolute classic voice, and they could, just one episode where they could actually expand on Venger would have been great. Personally, I think it is now far, far too late to bring back a revival of this one. I think everyone who remembers it is going to be older than us, frankly. And the Dungeons & Dragons as a property has so many more applications than just doing this. So th there was a car advert where they brought these guys back. There was a, a fan-made video game. Um, going back to to expand on this, kind of just, it feels like it, it's, I mean, I, it would almost be better to make this public domain. Just to, to you know, you know fuck guys? Do your own fanfic, make an archive of Dungeons & Dragons related stuff. The problem is that it interlinks with actual D&D &D characters. Mm, there is and that. I will just insert, by the way, there is uh, an AO3 D Dungeons & Dragons page. Explore at your own risk. Oh, God. Oh, gosh. Okay, so. <laughs> oh, also, uh, I found out this morning that they made um, Magic the Gathering cards uh, about some of these characters, which is pretty oh, cool. Awesome. It, just last year. Last year they oh, did wow. it. Yeah. I'd theory, I'd theorized for ages that a way you could do Dungeons and because we had for so long that rubbish Thora Birch Dungeons and Dragons film, and it's like this is such a huge deal in tabletop gaming, and such a a game changer, a game maker. It should not just be represented by this rubbish film. And, you know, hopefully this new film does way, way better than that. But just the idea of uh, you know American high school kids getting lost in this world. That's how you do it. You don't just make it a straight fantasy. The whole point of D&D &D is that people are flippant when they're playing uh, tabletop games. People don't talk exactly like uh, an elven archer would. And when they break character, it's more funny. So the episode of uh, uh, Community, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, but in reverse. Mm. And you know, ultimately, these kids, are, it's right there. But I wouldn't do it to try to capitalize on nostalgia because there's... It's it's a small select group, and it would not pay off the way that something like, say, Transformers would, which yeah, maintained think... a certain level of prominence and cultural cachet all the way through the 80s and 90s and 2000s. Yeah, the, the risk that you have when you make a movie version of something like D&D &D or something like World of Warcraft, yeah. you are starting with such an expansive property you gotta start small to make it into a film you have to distill it down to something that is tiny compared yeah. to what the original property provides yeah. you are automatically having to remove the very personalized experiences of so many fans of that thing it's it goes way beyond that idea that you can't possibly satisfy everyone. You can barely satisfy anyone mm. simply because of how much you have to reduce it down to be able to make a two-hour movie. The secret of how Tolkien was able to make Lord of the Rings so incredibly accessible was focusing on the hobbits. You yeah. keep it small, you keep like Willow, I'm short even for a Nelwyn. You make it this person is confronted with an absolutely massive dangerous world yeah. film is a very very different ball game to something like actually playing tabletop D, &D mm. or video playing games. world of warcraft and it it will by necessity lack all of those emergent elements that are a, a lot of what the appeal is to people mm. 
Whereas the uh, Duncan Jones Warcraft film was very much t- uh, steered towards these events are so important, yeah, but we don't care up... about anyone on screen. It doesn't matter. They're important, okay? Yeah, it ended up so po-faced because it took as read the very tongue-in-cheek po-facedness about the declarations of history that appear mm. in the game. Yeah. So, Vengers, I think his most significant episode, uh, there's the Dragon's Graveyard, which we'll get to in a bit with another character, but the time lost is the one where he, this was a choice, he drags out of time uh, Frank (laughs) Welker as basically a G.I. Joe in a fighter jet. And, by the way, the kids keep looking at this modern 1980s fighter jet and going, what is it, some sort of... Aircraft, and it's like you guys haven't seen a tornado. Like, what? You haven't seen an F-15 Tomcat? You haven't seen Top Gun? Oh, I suppose Top Gun's not out for a few years, but like, <laughs> they're they're bewildered by the incredible tech on show, and we're like, that just looks like any of the Decepticons. Anyway, um, so this GI Joe guy gets put in jail, but then Venger snatches out of history a a Messerschmitt pilot from the Luftwaffe. So this Nazi, yeah, and he puts him in like the, he he jumps out of his like um like sop with camel or something from World War One. I. I can't remember what the actual um plane was, and ends up parachuting down, meets the kids, and he is the blonde Aryan poster child, blue eyed, and uh, uh he you know they they're all like well we can help you get home, and he's like oh that oh, thank you mein friend. And then he goes to the river and think, says to himself, finally, a fresh start. And then rips off the iron cross on his sleeve, which was probably a swastika in the original uh, designs. And the, the premise of the episode is that Venger wants to send him back to the 1940s with this modern-day fighter jet so he can win the war for the, the Führer, which will bring about a complete time diversion so that these meddling children will never have existed. And I'm like, Venture, how do you know all this stuff and you yeah. don't know anything else ever? Like, there's no other episode where he's that cunning also, and crazy. Also, this is so dark. How is he aware that the, 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 like, pro- the progress of America hinges on the outcome of World War II? Why? How does he know this? Why does Venger know so much about Hitler is what we yeah. want to know. Yeah. <laughs> Hmm. Like, does he have commemorative plates? There was plates? a portal in the bottom of that ditch. Or does he disapprove of Hitler anyway? Because he's a bit goes a bit too far or something. I don't know. It's it's questionable waters. But again, what it's suggesting in the eighties when there were still quite a few old Nazis knocking around in your neighbourhood, or maybe if you lived in Argentina, as even opposed more. to all the new ones we have now. Yeah. Um, that this guy wanted a second chance and ultimately he betrays Venger and ends up crashing this fighter and then parachuting back to his original time to try to do something else. And Dungeon Master says to us, the audience, that he's going off to basically join the resistance and will then create the timeline that we already know. So this is one of those every bit of time travel has been always going to be and he actually helped to create the world in which the Nazis lost. So it's... It's prickly ground, but the episode is about giving even the seeming worst people ever 
a second chance. Well, the thing it made me think of was uh, the line in Captain America First Avenger when Dr. Erskine, Erskine. says people forget the first country the Nazis invaded was their own. Yeah. The, the suggestion that just because this German pilot is in the position of working with the Nazis at the moment doesn't mean that is who he is. Again, a modern version of this would have Venger standing, watching this guy parachute back through the portal and growling to himself. And then Dungeon Master appears next to him and says, you know, did you know he would do that? And then Dungeon Master sort of looks up and goes, yes, everyone deserves a second chance, Venger. Everyone. And then you just sort of end on Venger's back, just sort of like Mm. glaring into the sunset. And like something that gives you a shiver of, ooh, there's something going on here. It seems like... Again, this was ahead of its time. Paul Dini was one of the writers and would go on to do Batman the Animated Series, which is noteworthy because that that episode that's incredibly scary that we mentioned is not alone amongst a whole bunch of other ones. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's like a scarecrow demon that's the scarecrow out of Batman the Animated Series. Absolutely. He's even using fear fog. Yeah. So even though Dini didn't write that one, I'm fairly certain he watched that one and took notes. Um, But yeah, this sort of... This was the baby steps paving the way for more complex animated shows that we have thus talked about ever since then. Including, I feel like there was some influence on Avatar, The Last Airbender, in some capacity. Just T-Mang are not a million miles shy. Even if purely in the sense that the, the people who grew up to write and work on The Last Airbender would have seen this Mm. as kids. So, Dungeon Master... Uh, could come off as incredibly callous uh, in that he does sort of, he gives them their marching orders, they go off and get into incredible danger. And usually it, you can actually see the D&D taking place. There are, th- are, t- are things where like you can actually see Eric on the table about to flip the board and going, come on! Uh, but Dungeon Master remaining Dungeon Master implacable. Dungeon disappears behind a rock to do some rolling. <laughs> so there's, there's definite manipulation going on. And again, manipulative old wizards is something I really, really like as a concept and a theme, and I would have loved to see this expanded on. But there's just enough here of, like, the, the one episode where Dungeon Master actually straight up cries, which, again, was the Dragon's Graveyard, one of the best. He is dealing with the possibility that these kids are going to try and kill his son. And he blames himself for whatever happened to Venger. And then there's another character uh, in uh, Winds of Darkness who... Uh, what was her name? The, uh, the the old lady who is like, Oh, Dungeon Master. Martha. Martha. How do you know that name? Um, <laughs> who, like... She used to be an apprentice of his, and you get kind of the feeling that maybe she might have come from our world and then has been here for a very, very long time. And then when uh, yeah, she like said, the last time years. I saw you, you ruined my life. And it's like, whoa, elaborate on that. Nope, penultimate episode. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it does start to sow seeds of mistrust in someone that's supposed to be wise. So I feel like... On a long enough timeline, wizards eventually get put under the microscope to be like, you were manipulating these things into being, and this happened, which was incredibly bad, and you could have stopped it, but you didn't because you wanted this thing to happen. And then the wizard cries because deep down they're still just an old human, which we can 
relate to because uh, we know people who do odd things and it might be manipulative because they want to try to get something to happen and you know in this on the spectrum of wizards dungeon master certainly in the enigmatic side of it and we don't get to know enough about him but he definitely has compassion and all these lessons he keeps trying to impart to the kids and saying well done you learned it he is actually pretty good with the old positive reinforcement I feel like we got to talk about the episode Dungeon at the Heart of Dawn. Um, yeah. That's that's the one where like pure evil comes in a tornado oh, of God, disaster. Yeah. I, I love how Dungeon Master's like, right, we're all fucked. Like, yep. <laughs> he goes well, by many the- names, but he's basically just evil incarnate. Yeah. Uh, they really sell how like he uh, – that's one where he and Venger have to team up because it's that bad now. Yeah, I could see that as like a, the series finale. Like mm. the, it's kind of a shame that that's not the last in the release order. Yeah. Um, but that's the episode where he's with them the whole time. Yeah. And like, there's never a moment where he disappears. He's just they are in it. They are in a bad spot. I feel like all of his walls come down, and he's got to be as honest as he can, given his mysterious personality, with the kids. And it's like, look, we got to either get to this pool of light. Or we all die. That's just we, we we will all cease to be. And again, they they really sell that sense of uh, that this thing is too big for even my kingdom. Because ultimately, again, if you look at the meta here, if the players are asking their dungeon master, "What are we going to do about this?" and he's like, "Listen, this beast is so powerful, it can in fact outstrip me, the DM. <laughs> it <laughs> well, will destroy you- the board we're on right now." Well, Dungeon Master himself, and if you're looking at this from a point of view of playing the game, he's like, I told you not to open the box. (laughs) (laughs) And now we have to deal with it, but I don't want to. Yeah, but you put the box in front of us. (laughs) It was locked. (laughs) And uh, uh, Willow asked, okay, so what if the kids don't do the things that Dungeon Master has set up? And they, they decide then to move Dungeon on. Then Dungeon Master gets very crabby. I was going to say, like, then Dungeon Master steers them back towards it. And if they still won't do it, he gets all of his notes that was for that particular adventure, reformats it, and then makes them do it next week instead. Which oh. is probably why we get so many similar episodes of the thing that looked evil and was in fact good and just Quite asking possibly. for help. Look, if you're not going to play this damn adventure... Um, I can't remember which ones I've given you. What happens if they keep doing that? I stopped turning him into a donkey. Now he's a bog beast. (laughs) Is in fact what happens in the day of the Dungeon Master when he takes all of his notes, dumps them in front of Eric and goes, fine, you you do it then. Do it. That's one of my favourite episodes because Eric suddenly gets red robes and he's like, I think I can get us home. And it's it's an actual, it, it gives Eric power and then he starts to comprehend responsibility. That's one of the ones where it's like there's more to this guy. Mm. And like he, he all of this stuff that's happening to him, as much as he moans and bitches about it, is food for his soul. Because yeah. it, it's, it's hardship he's going through that is it's sculpting him into a person who actually makes decisions. Because before then... He's the traveler of the path of release resistance. He just get he's a he's a twig in the waters of his daddy's country club lake. 
and, and he's going to go wherever his family push him. After that episode or around that episode, he starts to play along mm. way easier. Yeah. He's like, well, we're going to go to the danger. I don't want to, but here we go. It's what we always do. And he'll say things like, I started memorizing his riddles. And he'll quote back lines to Dungeon Master and be like, am I right or am I right? <laughs> and like, it, it's a it's a real character progression over yeah. the course of the show where he's like, oh, he gets it now. He doesn't. He doesn't like it, but he gets it. I still feel like they underachieved on that episode. He could say, "Oh, hey, presto! Avengers' weakness is bubble gum. What do you got in the hat?" Are they gone? Yes, Cavalier. They are gone. Hey, nice timing, your shortness. Where were you when we needed an exterminator? There are many matters that require my attention, Cavalier. A dungeon master's life is not an easy one. Ah, don't give me that. You've got tons of power, and you never even use it. Boy, if I were Dungeon Master, I'd have it made. What an interesting proposition. And it's true, I could use a little rest. Very well, Cavalier. I accept your offer. Huh? Uh, excuse me, Dungeon Master, but what offer is that? Why, to make the Cavalier Dungeon Master. Huh? For a time, of course. Me? Dungeon Master? Listen, uh... Yes, indeed. I shall give you all my power to use as you will. Uh, this is a joke, uh, right, Dungeon Master? I wouldn't trust Derek to do card tricks. Wait a minute, Dungeon Master, old buddy. He's right, I can't even do card tricks. Can we talk this over? Ah! Hey, what did you do? I don't feel any different. That will change in time. But first, you must learn to control the power within you. Hey, nice threads. This'll be a piece of cake. <laughs> Do not take your new abilities too lightly, young dungeon master. Yeah, right. Gotcha. Say, this, this dungeon mastering sure does make a guy thirsty. Hey, what's the big idea? You must realize that everything touches everything else. Every action has its own consequence. There is a universal balance. If you bring water here to quench your thirst, you may be turning farmland into desert elsewhere. So how do I know what to do? Or what not to do? Or when I should... Travel east and seek the city called Darkhaven. It is there you will find the Golden Grimoire. It holds the key to everything you seek. Wait a minute! What did you do with my magic shield? On this journey, knowledge will be your shield. He's gone again. Yeah, and on vacation this time. Hey, don't sound so worried. Didn't you hear what he said? I'm Dungeon Master now. We know, Eric. That's what worries us. Another episode for Eric, Odyssey of the Twelfth Talisman. They meet some, some wise-ass kid named Lorn, who's got a talisman, and there's a lot of... Like, villagers really hate Lorne for some reason, and Eric and Lorne are sort of, like, getting together and they're being, you know, chatty with each other and teasing each other. It's like, hey, you, hey, you. And it is so manifestly clear that this is effectively... uh, uh, Eric's got some leanings, and uh, he's maybe not able to explore those yet. And they put it out in a way where the villagers want to burn these guys alive. And then it's like, no, wait, look, we're all the same. And all of this danger you thought was there, in fact, wasn't. And it's, it's, 
It's a little ham-fisted, but again, I'm kind of amazed they managed to sneak that past the parents. It's like, no, 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 these two young men just... They're just buddies. They're just buddies. They just like each other. You know, as Diana said, like, he's maybe the best friend he's ever had, his special friend. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, more like that. But it felt like the way that Nightmare on Elm Street 2 was a, like a, a, a way for, in this case, uh, it was a, a gay writer to be able to explore the sense of monsterism attached to homosexuality in that era. And it always feels gratifying when I find an encoded message in the, in the deeper past of television where it's, it's like this would have gotten past people in the day but we've got our antennae up. And also, it's for me, especially when I watch stuff that I, I originally watched at a very, very young age, it's quite intriguing to go, oh, yeah, that's where I got that from. That's, hmm. where that, that's when that message sank in. Also, Dungeons & Dragons <laughs> turned you gay. Uh, yes, yes. I had passionate crushes on both Hank and Sheila. So there you yes. go, then. <laughs> <laughs> so the parents were right to be afraid of it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think I'm that dangerous. Dangerous to society? Really? Maybe no. not. Okay. No. Maybe the parents were terrible. Anyway, so the last character to talk about is Tiamat, who almost wouldn't really be a character, but she, when she turns up, she changes the game again. Mm. A, what is it, a five-headed dragon? She's Yeah, she, so she's effectively kind of a hydra, um, but there's there's never any implication that any one particular of her heads is the master head. It's the red one. There is one in the middle that is the one that when she eventually speaks, that's the one that speaks. She speaks like this! It's yeah. Frank, Frank Welker, Welker again. again. <laughs> Getting Welkered. But Tiamat is, she's the thing that kind of felt like she linked it all back to, well, dragons, obviously. Um, there's not... That many dungeons in this, is there? No, they do get locked in some dungeons. Some dungeons, but there, there are more dragons than there are dungeons. Yes, But thankfully. Tiamat is the thing that kind of feels like she links it all to wider mythology. Because Tiamat, I can't remember the original... Arabian? Possibly, yeah. But but she has her origins in, in other mythologies. And in this... I think she might be one of the beasts that will bring about Armageddon. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so she has that. five heads, and I, I think it's like an ice head and a fire head. And, and a, a gas and head. And a gas head. And a Electricity. Head. Electricity yeah. head, yeah. yeah. Lightning head. So she's she's a Zelda demon. <laughs> you got to get the right weapon to go up against each individual head. Oh, but, can you imagine swapping between every shield for that fight? Oh, my God, yes. Tiamat um, would be a beast of a boss. Yeah. But she, oh, there you go, Babylonian goddess of the ocean and personification of chaos. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, Babylonian, so, big difference. Yeah. The, um, you never studied. <laughs> <laughs> the, the essence of Tiamat as a character is she is the only thing that Venger is scared of. So there are occasions <laughs> where... Which humanises Venger. It does humanise Venger, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but it does mean that, that there are occasions when the kids try to use Tiamat as a weapon against Venger. Um, and but Tiamat herself kind of feels to me like there's she's chaos is a good way of putting it actually she there's nothing about her that seems particularly evil in the strictest sense nature she's red in tooth and claw but yeah she's like a natural disaster mm. you, she's just there and there's no avoiding her you just have to support each other to get past her yeah, she's like a hurricane <laughs> 
Yeah. And then occasionally, the or, or on, I believe, one occasion, the kids have to help Venture mm. get away from Tiamat. Yeah. Uh, the episode The Dragon's Graveyard is particularly cool because I, I'd always been fascinated by the idea of elephants' graveyards and they were positing that with dragons. But this is the episode where Hank goes, you know what we've got to do? Got to take out Venger. I'm sick of all of this. And like the whole way through the episode, Hank is really determined and everyone's like, oh, Jesus, Hank's... Just like Hank is on a John Wick quest to kill Venger. And he ends up with Venger like pinned to a rock with his arrows, holding up an arrow to his face and then fires it past him and basically goes, nope, we're not going to kill you. We're just going to show you we could kill you. Mm. And that episode drove parents insane. And it's like, that's really good. What are you talking about? It's mercy. But they didn't want... Even the implication to be shown that you could get that close, and especially kids don't have it's power. Like, it's having even if something is to to people who see correlation, even if the thing is actually reaching out to people who have had th- dark thoughts and trying to give them perspective through the darkest of times. Conceptually, just that being there is enough to, in the eyes of these knee-jerk, frightened people, cause suicide. So even discussing it. So their theory is, let's bury it deep down where where it'll it'll never never bother bother us. Don't give the kids who need help help. Just tell them to be normal and then no child will ever find themselves in a very dark place ever again. How's that working out for you, folks? It's a really powerful moment to see Hank not do it. Like he has every instance to you know, end Avengers life. And he, he says very clearly that he didn't do it for Avenger to, to, to not kill him. He did it for them because it would make him, it would make the, all of them just as bad as Avenger was. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a logic that's very easy for kid, maybe older kids. I don't know to understand, but I, I think that all comes back to what I really love about this show is that it does not treat the audience like adorable you know, little like, morons. Yeah, they're, they're like stupid kids. It, it deals with really complex themes and ideas, and even literary things like tragedy and and, and like the star-crossed lovers and sacrificing what you want for the good of the other. And I, it's all really, really up there concepts, and it's very clearly communicated and well done. For I mean, I was I was six years old when I watched this show, and yeah, I just it, it's it's great. It's a great show. There was a final uh, episode planned uh, called Requiem. It was originally going to be called uh, Redemption because the whole point of it by the end is to redeem rather than destroy Venger. And it was written, and it was going to be a case of if the show gets picked up for a fourth season. We'll put this on as uh, on the end of the third season as a way of either it'll close because they get the opportunity to go home, or it will open the world to some a new way of seeing things. And if you redeem Venger and he is ref- effectively returned to humanity, that changes the game again. Which so either way, it's fascinating. Now to me. There was no way Eric was going to go. Uh, yeah, you know what? Let's let's carry on. Like there was like we sat down and we watched the most up to date fan 
ad- adaptation of this. It's a, a, an old audio drama reading of the script. Some of the original voices are included, and some uh, they'd managed to edit together various bits of the show to make it feel like you're actually watching this final episode. It's shaky, but it does have a sense of satisfaction at the end for if you've been waiting for 40 years to to see an end, to to see these kids get home. And so it did feel cathartic to to watch it. I I do wish they'd been able to do that as a last episode because it would have been a fantastic last episode. But again, the melancholy of never quite does also suggest that, as you said, Sharon, the, the notion of home can change over time and what they're working towards might be more complex and more rewarding than simply going back to live in Punxsutawney or wherever the hell they came from. Splendid. You have all wandered into my citadel. Here you will spend the rest of eternity. Me. What's this? Me? I must let you go. Me. Fine. How did you see through my old washerwoman disguise? Well done, adventurers. You saw through his illusion through the goodness of your hearts. The following party members get bonus buffs to all their stats. Me. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard. Alejandro Vargas, bastard from a basket. And this is so close to Daniel Plainview. <laughs> Fine, I'll take over. Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dutchler. Not many people know this, but the Autobots were also there at the dawn of time in the dungeon. Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dutchler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi. You want to do the next few? Me. 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 Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, we're keeping your character sheet for you. Johan Clausen, Joe Gluck, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Pohlmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Haru, Tim Wazenski, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. Go, adventurers, go to safety. I shall have new information for you tomorrow. Yes, leave this place. You're cutting into my valuable glowering time. And for those who wish to go on an additional quest, at the Castle of Patreon, you will find the utterly rubbish Dungeons and Dragons movie, the one Jeremy Irons wishes he'd never done. Dungeons and Dragons, folks. Thank you very much, Name, for coming on our show. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Uh, I have a video game channel called The Super Sibs, and we have, uh, we're just wrapping up a series on Lost Vikings 2. So if you're a fan of the concept of these rag, this ragtag group getting put into another world and trying really hard to get home, uh, that, I, that, I do that series with my brother. It's really funny, and we do we do complete the game, so I do promise you an ending. Uh, but yeah, you can go on YouTube and search the Super Sibs Lost Vikings, and you can watch that. Thank you so much. We will be back next week. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. 
Adventurers? <laughs> Hank, you're okay! Yeah. About time you decided to come back and lead this little band. I don't know how you put up with these guys. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Martha. I, I never expected you to come help us, but I'm sure glad you did. I'm glad, too. But it was your courage that helped me understand how simply my light could defeat his darkness. Indeed. I should have followed your advice sooner, Dungeon Master. But until I met these children, I didn't understand. It is not the speed with which something is learned, but that it is learned at all that counts. Speaking of learning, have you by any chance learned of a way we can get home? Where I have heard of a great magician by the name of Kryn, who might be able to send you home. Now that's what I wanted to hear! Yeah!